0: Next step, that's one 639 8783 Or text next step to 53342. New York call the 24-7 Hope Line at one 8 Hope NY, or text Hope and Y 467369.
1: At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best, it's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line. It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI. It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. My fellow citizens, at this hour, American and coalition forces are in the early stages of military operations to disarm Iraq, to free its people, and to defend the world from grave danger. On my orders... Coalition forces have begun striking selected targets of military importance to undermine Saddam Hussein's ability to wage war. These are opening stages of what will be a broad and concerted campaign. More than 35 countries are giving crucial support, from the use of naval and air bases, to help with intelligence and logistics, to the deployment of combat units. Every nation in this coalition has chosen to bear the duty and share the honor of serving in our common defense to all the men and women of the United States Armed Forces now in the Middle East. The peace of a troubled world and the hopes of an oppressed people now depend on you. That trust is well placed. The enemies you confront will come to know your skill and bravery. The people you liberate will witness the honorable and decent spirit of the American military. In this conflict, America faces an enemy who has no regard for conventions of war or rules of morality. Saddam Hussein has placed Iraqi troops and equipment in civilian areas, attempting to use innocent men, women, and children as shields for his own military, a final atrocity against his people. I want Americans and all the world to know that coalition forces will make every effort to spare innocent civilians from harm. A campaign on the harsh terrain of a nation as large as California could be longer and more difficult than some predict. And helping Iraqis achieve a united, stable, and free country will require our sustained commitment. We come to Iraq with respect for its citizens, for their great civilization, and for the religious faiths they practice. We have no ambition in Iraq except to remove a threat and restore control of that country to its own people. I know that the families of our military are praying that all those who serve will return safely and soon. Millions of Americans are praying with you for the safety of your loved ones and for the protection of the innocent. For your sacrifice, you have the gratitude and respect of the American people and you can know that our forces will be coming home as soon as their work is done our nation enters this conflict reluctantly yet our purpose is sure the people of the united states and our friends and allies will not live at the mercy of an outlaw regime that threatens the peace with weapons of mass murder we will meet that threat now with our army air force navy coast guard and marines So that we do not have to meet it later with armies of firefighters and police and doctors on the streets of our cities now that conflict has come the only way to limit its duration is to apply decisive force and i assure you this will not be a campaign of half measures and we will accept no outcome but victory my fellow citizens the dangers to our country and the world will be overcome we will pass through this time of peril and carry on the work of peace we will defend our freedom we will bring freedom to others and we will prevail may god bless our country and all who defend her
2: welcome back ladies and gentlemen to the latest edition of the woke bros of course i'm your co-host big waz aka wazzy lambray and nando is out in new orleans on assignment this week however decided to bring back a very special guest friend of the show um he's the host of the blowback podcast uh man just all around mensch one of my favorite people on the left on the web Noah Colwyn, what's going on, man? Welcome back to the show, brother.
3: Hey, thanks for having me.
2: Of course. Uh, you know, my news diet these days, I got to say, I'm not reading a lot of New York Times, Washington Post drivel. It's a lot of left media podcast stuff. Um, you know, I, I, I tap in with Jacobin every now and again. Um, but, yeah, everybody seems to be sort of meditating on what seems crazy to say man 20 years since the invasion 20 fucking years man 20 years um I know people who listen to the show will know that Nando my co-host uh that he became radicalized behind that shit um just to, just the feeling of just watching this this death march on the news and like yo this is fucked up this is bullshit and, you know, a lot of people sort of have an idea that, you know, George Bush and his, his Fifi was hurt cause his daddy and this and that. And you have an article that's coming out in the the New Statesman, is that the name of the publication?
4: Yep, yep, yep.
2: New Statesman uh, that should be coming out this weekend, either Friday or Saturday, where you explain, um, no, actually the invasion was over 20 years in the making. Um, and, and what people need to know is that Similarly to Iran, uh, before we hated Iraq, they were our partners, and we loved them. We loved Saddam, and part of the reason why they became our partners is, you know, as you get into in your piece, Noah, is that they lost Iran as a client state after the revolution. I, I think people need to understand our our sort of antagonistic posture towards Iran. Literally, is just that <laughs> they were our client state these, you know, these religious kooks as the the State Department would call them, took over the government and cut off access and became our antagonists. And we've hated them ever since. And we were out a client and we needed a new one. And we were like, fuck it, their neighbor, Iraq, we can figure out a way to deal with them. And um, so just talk about that origin, Noah, because it is yeah. central to the story.
3: Yeah, so I think, you know, um- Well, with that very good, uh, you know, entry point, I think actually it'd be fun to sort of go stay in 1979 for a minute, Mm -hmm. because 1979, we remember it in America as like, uh, for two things, the first of which was the Iranian Revolution and uh, the effect that it had on our foreign policy, but also the uh, second uh, major oil price hike of the 1970s, the, the earlier one being in 1974. And so in 1979, you know, it's like the sky is falling. And at the same time, though, you shouldn't just look at Iran or the uh, even the um, I would say uh, like a, the 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 oil uh, shenanigans in isolation. Part of what's happening is that there is a broader wave of Islamist ferment in that year. That's you know kind of shaking the world. Uh, you know we don't talk about it much, but there was actually a Saudi. Uh, you know, like can't quite call it a coup or revolution, but a bunch of religious radicals took over uh the Kaaba uh. In one, sec- Mecca.
2: one second before you go on, because our, our audience know is is a little bit more novice <laughs> sure, sure. In, in their understanding of these sure. things. So let me can actually, you explain what yeah, an what an is Islamist uprising good, me, is let's, to, good way to Yeah,
3: let me back up. So the the Muslim world or the Ummah is divided largely into two, uh, you know, like sects of belief, the Shia and the Sunni. And the Sunni are more predominant in number. And the Shia are are the minority and uh, Sunni and like, uh, like Sunnis are most often or at least in the Middle Eastern context, they're Arabs. So in Iran, Persia, uh, the the Islamist uh, flavor there, if you'd like to, if you'd like, uh, was Shia. The mm-hmm. 1979 religious stirrings in Saudi Arabia were Sunni. While we think of what happened in Iran as like, oh, that was just one revolution over there in that country, what it actually was was this broader, um, you know, kind of awakening. Because the 70s were a crisis-ridden time for everybody. Uh, you know, the like oil prices were rising and the inflation in the United States was producing all kinds of political instability. And, you know, they then initiated a big rece- big old recession with the Volcker shock. And so it was a very uh, kind of chaotic, crazy time. And in that chaotic and crazy time, as we're sort of trying to renavigate our foreign policy priorities, figure out who are our friends, who are our allies. Saddam Hussein emerges as a very effective, vicious leader. And Saddam was a Soviet client for the most part, because the Iraqi government had been able to build itself up with the support primarily of the Soviet Union, although it was not a communist state or really a socialist state. And the uh, Iraqi Ba'ath party was happy to liquidate communists uh, when they needed to
2: like everywhere Saddam else <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
3: yeah. Saddam comes into power and he you know Iraq and Iran they're right next to each other uh and there were tremendous disputes you know historically uh between these two countries over who gets to have access to Persian Gulf uh waterways and oil production rights and so on and Saddam is also thinking well listen you know I'm he Saddam is a Sunni Arab And he thinks, you know, I could be, Iraq could be the big new player in the Middle East. He thinks of himself in 1979 in the early 80s as a competitor on a, you know, on a real foot, even keel perhaps, or, you know, even he has advantages because he's got a more educated secular country than Saudi Arabia um, or uh, Iran. And so he launches this war, you know, there's a, he goes to war with Iran in 1982, and it becomes the longest conventional war of the 20th century. Sorry, in 81, I believe, and and it lasts till 88. And America, and this is sort of the subject of my article, America in the West, uh, including the United Kingdom, West Germany, while we're going through our own economic crises at home, while we're deindustrializing, stripping out the copper wiring, we are at the same time beginning a covert policy of arming Saddam in his effort against Iran. While we also do trade arms for hostages and do other deals, you know, or turn a blind eye to some deals with Iran, we are able to at least for certain, you know, weapons manufacturers and, you know, um, other people who have a vested interest in sending armament to, you know, Iraq, the the French were really helpful with uh, nuclear assistance, Um, you know, we sent over. God, we sent over everything. The British sent over a guy who worked on a, a just, something just, called just the Super- to interject oh, yeah.
2: really quickly, um, just yeah. so people have an understanding of why America was as gung ho about this um, as they were, right? And by America, obviously, we mean the freaking State Department, the yeah. the, the, the military oligarchy, right? Um, why they were because in 2023, we all understand that there's like a bunch of means um, to fuel or power our country, Um, there's alternative energy, literally, it's called alternative energy sources. In 1979, it was like, yo, if we don't have oil, we ain't got shit.
3: I mean, absolutely. You know, (laughs) you could argue a lot and a lot of people do that, you know, what we think of as modernity basically begins when the British stop using coal to power their ships and they start using oil. Yep. Because petroleum oil, you know, was not the fuel of industrialization for, you know, its initial, you know, like 50, 80 years. Uh, it was coal, anthracite coal. You know, when the France and Germany are, go, you know, like if you ever want a quick answer as to why did World War One or why did, you know, wh- what was one of the big issues of World War I? It was because, you know, France and Germany had real issues over who got to control the coal. So you go Mm to the 70s and now you've got like, you know, America has tapped out its domestic oil production and there's also environmental hazards that people there don't want to live with anymore. We, you know, we had invested in Iran as our main, you know, Iran and Saudi Arabia. Yeah, we had the Shah.
2: We had, we had, we had our guy. We were good. uh,
3: I found this in researching this article. It blew my mind over the course of the entire 1970s, a full 30%. Of America's, you know, a a government-approved arms sales went to just Iran, only Iran got like a full third of our entire arms uh, sales for the, you know, a whole decade, and that was just, you know, that was part of the system called, you know, dollar recycling, where, you know, in during this time of horrible inflation, the value of the dollar and the value of American industry was to some extent preserved, and our trade deficit. Was you know to some extent eased by the fact that like they were buying you know like oil barrels in dollar or they were like, like like dollars were becoming the currency with which these people were doing business for oil and you know that's that's now the post Bretton Woods system that people like that's the world we live in now that you right. know like but the that wasn't is always the
2: case right it was
3: made you know this is the trial by fire through which that happened and Saddam in in the eighties you know during this time our interest in him is really limited because like in the long run Saddam was never able g- going to be able to be a friend of americas. Israel saw him as their number one enemy, Saudi Arabia saw him as their number one enemy, not Iran at that time. Saddam, you know, Saddam thought otherwise, but ultimately once we you know, we gave him the coordinates to do chemical weapons attacks on kurds in the 1987 and in 1988 the war ends and 1989 and 1990 we're still sending him armaments literally up to a few months before we have the Gulf war so part of my you know like my argument and sort of <laughs> okay. what I want to try and get people to remember 20 years after the Iraq war is to think a little bit about what happened in the 20 years before the Iraq war because mm-hmm. a huge amount of what is you know I think a lot of people think of as like prehistory or stuff that's way in the past When you begin to see that, like, actually there's like, you know, the story that leads right up to the Iraq war, you can sort of begin to see, Oh, it wasn't a mistake. It's not a mystery why we invaded. It's the conclusion of this policy that we had, where we created, you know, this conflict and we, you know, waged, you know, we, we, once we disposed of Saddam for, you know, like doing as much damage against Iran as he could, um, and effectively making them, you know, like, like, like weakening them from doing anything that America thought they could do. Uh, I guess in that time and the years after, um, you know, we then immediately heel turned and Saddam, you know, like we, you know, our the U.S. ambassador, April, a woman named April Glassby, right before the Gulf War, and this was in 1990, so you know, this is this is after Iran Iraq war is over, this is you know, Bush won, this is daddy, and you know, his state, to his highest, highest levels of his government are, you know, intervening in 1990 at the beginning of the year to make sure that, you know, there are certain, you know, to, to, to make sure that ser- uh, certain arms deals can go through. And then by the end of the year, we are initiating Operation Desert Steel Shield and the next year's Desert Storm.
4: <laughs> and,
3: you know, we get a war and, and the president, you know, he he got a bump in the ratings, but it wasn't enough to, to you know, keep him in office and then we begin the sanctions war against Iraq that sort of leads up to, to the, 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 to, to the war
2: war. Exactly. Um, and, and so much has been made of, and justifiably so, the sort of PR campaign that Cheney, Rumsfeld, and George Bush himself went on in the pretext um, to the Iraq war, the second, um, what was what was the pr of george bush cuz this was a very popular war um in america as uh at the time the the uh the the gulf war the persian gulf war so
3: it's it's a great question cuz the gulf war is like like the 2003 war we remember because of the lies like we remember that they mm-hmm. they told the American public that there were a bunch of you know WMD yellow all tubes
2: the, all yeah, of that yeah, crap exactly the the, the New Go York for- Times lying they asses also being duped by the by the CIA or the Bush um, Bush and Cheney or both or whatever like we all remember that
3: <laughs> this is it, that's at this point that is as uh, old news as it gets. But the Gulf War, for a few different reasons, is much more interesting and I, and I would say actually influential because you see stuff that gets developed in the Gulf War that then becomes entrenched policy for years going forward. So the first thing I would say is, um, you know, on that front is what was about military embedding. So before the Gulf War and like during Vietnam, journalists, you know, they could go and they would have free reign around the, the, the um,
2: mm-hmm.
3: battlefield to a certain extent. Um, under the Gulf War, they began, the Pentagon began embedding journalists with troops. And so when people saw in Gulf War, Desert Storm, and they saw war on TV, you know, like during primetime hours, what they were seeing was, you know, a bunch of, you know, like night vision goggles, effective explosions. And then when they saw stuff on the ground, it was from the perspective, you know, a very manicured perspective from American GIs, you know, it, it's, um, I think, very, uh, like, These, you know, 30 years later, it's kind of hard to tell what's culture and where's the react, you know, which began one or the other. But like a lot of the images that I think we have of what a battlefield looks like come from this sort of beginning of the Gulf War. Just the experience of being on the ground with American troops and seeing them take engagements where they're blowing up Iraqi tanks by, you know, the, the, you know, they're seeing soldiers. You know, I mean, it's it's a very uh, Americans got a hell of a show.
4: And yeah
2: and 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 the, the the importance of that is like you're watching this at home, and it's like, wow, look at what our military can do. this is this is just an awesome excellent machine. look look at america we we can't be fucked with this and you, you know as
3: opposed to it's like a bad joke where it's like we're blowing up like we blew up three thousand tanks and through over three thousand tanks in the Gulf War. And we're, you know, pretty much just a bunch of old Soviet tanks that have been supplied to Saddam. Well, great. Like, you know, tanks right now are pretty useful in, in Ukraine, but like, that's the first war that like we're dealing with, like, it's it, like, like, like we blew up an outmoded arsenal and patted ourselves in the back and like, listen, we're rubes. I don't know if like, you know, like I couldn't tell you like about like the, you know, like the ag- actual particulars of a lot of this stuff or whatever. I'm sure like if I was just watching this on TV, I'd think it's a good time. But it was, you know, for all intents and purposes, a really good show. And the other part of the show that was, you know, sort of the forerunner to the lies of Iraq in two thousand three, and we we go through we run through this in our uh, in the first season of the podcast, but the the, the there was a firm called uh, Hill and Knowlton, a PR firm, that was working with the Kuwaiti royal family to arrange for testimony before Congress to have a uh, uh, you know a Kuwaiti girl whose name. Um, I forget her name offhand, but she testified that she had seen Iraqi soldiers in a Kuwaiti hospital. Uh, you know, like this is the before the Gulf War like starts. This is when Iraq mm-hmm. had invaded Kuwait. And so Iraqi soldiers in a Kuwaiti hospital. And she says that she saw them killing babies in the incubators, um, mm. you know, Nazi stuff. So it turns this out a, that this, you know this what it is this this, Nazi this,
2: this, stuff. But it, it reminds me of Colin Powell at the U.N.
3: is. Oh, well, I mean, and it's the same thing because when it, it, it didn't happen, this this episode <laughs> happened too. This girl was not just like some random girl. She was the daughter of the Kuwaiti ambassador to the US, I believe. Wow. And so there is a, you know, and 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 there was an active effort to get the um, you know, people invested in the Kuwaiti cause and to try mm-hmm. and gin up support and to tell these kinds of lies as well. And the consequence of it was basically that, like, you know, we we liquefied, you know. Uh, essentially, you know, people hiding in shelters. We destroyed an electric grid. We, you know, which is, you know, and this is another important thing. So, like, just as like a, a slight aside, uh, your, uh, I think, maybe helpful context, right? Like, America, America's military is premised not on like how good our soldiers fight, but on how good our bombing and missiles are. And in Vietnam, one of the big problems that we had was that we dropped as many bombs as we, you know, could make. And it wasn't doing anything because Vietnam was like a forested rural society. It was not industrialized heavily. There weren't, there wasn't stuff to blow up. Basically <laughs> that wasn't Iraq. Iraq was like, you know, a country of like, you know, uh, like, like, like tons, you know, millions and millions of educated people, doctors, lawyers, secular, you know, like, like in a sense, it resembled something like Western society and it had a work you know, it had a proletariat, it had industry, it had, you know, it relied on an electric grid. So the combination of sanctions, plus like the air destruction of the Gulf War made it so that like the duration of the nineties while Saddam became, you know, this kind of like uh, Kim Jong-un style punchline um, before we decided that he was the, you know, like biggest the biggest Most evil you- man in the exactly. world- Exactly. history, you know, right? He, we, we saw, like, I, I think from the view of the policymakers, Iraq was being softened up. So that by 2003, we now had, you know, motive. There was this dangerous guy in the Middle East We had means and, you know, over the course of the 1990s, we had, and and through the Gulf War, we had, you know, demolished and weakened Iraq so they couldn't really, you know, work at full strength or what would have been their full strength. And, you know, then there was opportunity which was after nine eleven, literally within a day or two after nine eleven, former CIA director going on TV saying, "Oh, well, you know, we should be looking at Saddam Hussein," and then, you know, within a couple months, you have you know the invasions for uh, Iraq plans being drawn up, and very very quickly, an aggressive false campaign was made to connect Al Qaeda to Iraq, and and so on. And so there is like, to me, when we think about like you know twenty years later and we look back at this, like you know, like think about it like any other crime, and 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 you know. And, and you can kind of, uh, I, I would sort of urge people to like, you know, reconstruct it for themselves in this kind of way, because it's a pretty, to me, it's a pretty simple, it's a pretty straight, you know, straightforward history. Uh, yeah,
2: it's, it's a straightforward history. And I think it's useful for the listeners to understand, you know, especially how things get, the stories get told in mainstream press, right? Uh, prestige media press. Um, folks need to understand that this is on a continuum what what noah just described from poppy bush to clinton to you know w right uh and the reason why you can have a continuity across democrat and republican because you know there's such a big difference noah uh the reason why you can have that continuity is that the the national security or the military or the blob or whatever that bureaucracy whatever you want to call that there's actual continuity <laughs> amongst that cohort of people right and, and, and oh, yeah, there's
3: continuity among people and you know i think part of what's you know you see continuity with people and then even when they change out let's say people at the top a lot of the policies stay the same same even though exactly. the way they the way they talk about it is dangerous. they come out of the, the same pre- thing pres- tanks like, like you know i'll give you i'll give you an example like you know today we're talking you know so we're recording this on march 23rd and they're making this huge fuss about TikTok tock and banning banning tick and you know it's it's like oh my god like you know china banning TikTok, it's crazy we, we got to do this blah, blah blah when trump was president there was a you know like walmart and oracle were privately vying to get trump to unilaterally take TikTok US away from ByteDance the parent company and bring it into the US. So it's like, you know, n- now we have a different pretext which is not like the same like, thing. It's a national security threat and we're putting it before Congress, but like, you know, before, you know, there was these two different companies. So it's like we've got two different methods by which we're going for the same outcome, which is either, you know, TikTok ban or just strip it away. Because, you know, obviously there is like 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 if you can't dispute that those are the same thing, then I think it's sort of, at least to me, part of what, you know, like it's a challenge to, you know, thinking people everywhere to sort of say, say like, all right, well, if these situations are so similar, but the interests that they're purporting to represent are so different, then perhaps what is the common interest, you know, in all of it? And of course, the common interest between Walmart and Oracle wanting to do it and us doing a national security thing is that the kneecap a competitor in China, it helps advance towards a Cold War. And ideally, (laughs) they're giving TikTok US or whatever the fuck it is, they're giving that algorithmic sludge to, you know, some American company, you know, some nice, shiny apple pie American company. And, you know, this isn't a I think like, you know, what's in what's kind of uh, also worthy, you know, worthwhile to look at uh, look back at saying Iraq and viewed like this is that the kinds of uh, influence operations that the government was running on the American public at that time, um, you know, like they continued in the years afterward through today. And so there is also a degree to which it's like, you know, a skepticism of what our government tells us its policy is versus what we can, you know, reason or report out and figure out what it is. It really is um is still really vast and that credibility gap you know between what our government does and what it says it does like is you know i mean it just
2: gets bigger and bigger by the every, day yeah.
3: <laughs> you um, know I I, I I talked to um the journalist Seymour Hirsch last week and oh wow uh, that's you know, that's fire yeah it was really cool and he made this you know like you know he had like he's somebody where it's like you talk to him I was like oh like that was people talked about all this and they had these arguments and they and they, you know, like like a very similar set of concerns during something like Vietnam. And, you know, now it's just like, yeah, we've made the whole foreign policy out of Vietnam.
2: Yeah. And. Man, and so you know, we're, we're gonna play the the Bush. So by the time people listen to this, they will have heard the Bush sort of press conference on the day of the Iraq War, um, the the Iraq War invasion, anyway. And <laughs> the 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 crazy thing that people are gonna who are listening to this and who are thinking about twenty years, like it, it like it's hard to pin down. The why, right? Outside of just, um, just this idea that generally uh, American hegemony means that we need to be influential in, in the Middle East, no matter fucking what. Um, the why's, right? And and I was listening to this conversation the other day, and they were making the the sort of argument as to whether this was. Some ideological situation where the neocons are just like, no, we need to be, we need to be strong. We need to be big players, blah, 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 blah. blah. Or was it merely just as crude as a material calculation? Like Iraq has a shit ton of oil, yada, yada, yada. We need to be in there. Whereas to me, I don't see those things as opposed to one another. I I think uh, it's, a very, it's, a,
3: it's a very good uh, point. Like they're not opposed to one another at all. I think
2: neocons think that we should be in charge of everything, every every material good. Like, like to me, it's it's all of the same piece. To me,
3: I think a good way to you know, it's um, I've I've just got Vietnam on the brain lately, I guess. But like the one of the things that like y- you saw there, and that like neocons in the years after Vietnam would serve a similar purpose is that. There's always room in the highest levels of American bureaucracy for uh, very smart guys who can come up with lots of bad ideas very quickly that call for, uh, you know, that are like the right bad ideas at the right time. So in Vietnam, you know, like the guy who fits this archetype was a sort of proto neocon named uh, Walt Rostow. And then who is, you know, considered like kind of like a kooky, you know, like credulous uh, like but like zealous ideological guy by his colleagues and then you know you have this group who will later be the you know the dark princes who do the iraq war in 2003 who were part of something in the 70s called team b
4: hello listener guess who's back it's me anthony mays your favorite butcher turn podcast producer and i'm here to talk to you about butcher box ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free for a year offer plus an additional $20 off. You can choose salmon, chicken breast, or steak tips free in every order for a year. Sign up today at ButcherBox.com Dings and use code Dings, D-I-N-G-S, to choose your free for a year offer plus get $20 off your first order. And Team B was
3: basically this group of people who came together in the Pentagon because the CIA had been sa- estimating what the Soviets missiles and military strength was and the all and, estimating and all the
2: wrong by the way yeah and all, well, so- no, all the cold warriors
3: said those are too low. So we need we need our own numbers we need <laughs> okay. our own numbers gotcha. So the CMB people had to end up going and so they basically made up their own numbers and this is Paul Wolfowitz, Richard Pearl. these are mm-hmm. guys who will go on to be influential in sort of architecting and sculpting the Iraq war in, in 2003. And so, you know, those guys are ideologically motivated. However, a lot of them also serve on corporate boards that benefited directly from, you know, like there's a whole bunch of different sort of uh, competing interests that go with what happens when, you know, your government, like when when your government aligns against a country and, you know, you, you, like you, you, you basically, and you put a target uh, and we put an American target on a foreign government, you know, there becomes a lot of incentive to go back to that country to, you know, make them the object of your of your policy. And so in this case, like these guys they, you know, they were ideologically motivated, they, you know, certainly material, m- materially motivated in the circumstances. And again, you know, I, I referenced this earlier, but like, they had an opportunity, you know, it was like, they 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 viewed 911 not as like this big problem that you know, is the result of uh, it's like, Oh, no, you know,
2: Let's go over there now. Yeah,
3: it's like it's like it's like you know it's like uh what Blago- Rod Blagojevich said about like that Senate seat that he wanted to get. Away. He's like this thing is fucking golden, and I don't want to waste it. Like, <laughs> like that was how like they are. That's how they viewed it, I think. And then, um, you know, because the the other the reality of it is also that like there's a big mistake that people make about uh saying that the um uh like you know like oh we we did it for oil but we you know we, or people who say we did it for oil like we didn't take over it we didn't do all this stuff uh, and, and they keep talking about what we didn't do and that is important to note because what we didn't do, you know what iraq didn't do was continue to be an effective you know uh competitive uh like threat to in on world oil markets it was not a, a you know in, in iraq's oil production by the way iraq had the deepest largest proven reserves of any of the, uh, I believe of any of the, uh, countries in the Persian Gulf at that time, but I, 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 could be wrong, but I'm, I'm pretty sure I'm not. Um, and you know, there's like a, a way in which it's again, like, you know, you can, it's, I mean, th- this is what part of like, you know, makes like stuff like this so crazy and interesting though. And like huge policy, right. Is that like, you can look at something as big as the Iraq war or, you know, even like Waco or, um, I don't know ted bundy whatever but you like anything that like is a big crazy cataclysmic event you know even you know of any size and you can identify all these different you know Complicated factors that, like taken together, are what you know produce the story of what actually happened.
2: Yeah, and I think another one of those biggest stories, and related to what I just asked you, um, when people, <laughs> I I, I got to laugh when people say that uh, you know the, it wasn't necessarily about the oil and you know taking it over, even though we broker deals for Exxon and all these other motherfuckers um, to get their piece. Uh, this war invented the fucking wartime grift, like in a major way, in the way that they privatized the war, where private American companies got contracts from the government to erect infrastructure, to pay for soldiers, to pay for this, to pay for that. We're talking about in the trillions of dollars, I mean, I would say I would say a
3: good point of comparison, you know, in the way that American media today talks about Wagner Group in Ukraine, um, you know, this Russian mercenary like organization like that's Blackwater. That was Dincorp. That was a lot of these, you know, it's Halliburton, you know, companies that provided everything from making, uh, you know, serving um, like shitty scrambled eggs on styrofoam plates to GIs to uh, literally you know like mowing down civilians with you know machine gun like every, every like the-
2: single part of the war effort was managed by a private actor which which, like for folks to understand trillions of tax dollars poured into this effort so that private citizens could get paid their, the their were, firms could get paid. Like and, like and part of what when you think about those
3: dollars Im- when you think about those dollar amounts too, you know, it's like what was that supposed to be going toward? In a lot of cases it was supposed to be going toward, you know, reconstruction. Like a big phrase in the two thousands, like a, a oh big like meme Iraq. that people argued about with Afghanistan, and Iraq was like we're, we're you know, we, we we're not here to do nation building. And what that ended up meaning was that like, you know, it's like, all right, yeah, it, we're not doing it because we've chosen not to do it. So like we appropriate too little aid for those development efforts and that which we do is really corrupt. And then because we don't actually have like a plan to, you know, develop these institutions in the long run, we end up creating all, you know, like it was basically relying on, it was, it was a, cause it's also, it goes back to like a perfect storm on the morning of September 11th. Donald Rumsfeld, I believe it was that morning, it may have been the day four, but they brought the, broadcast it on the morning uh, from the day before in which like, you know, Donald Rumsfeld has declared war on the Pentagon bureaucracy and he says, you know, like, 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 and, he, and, and apparently the joint chiefs, it's, you know, fought, you know, slap back at him. And he said, how, how can the Pentagon be attacking me? How, like, can somebody just attack the Pentagon literally on 9-11 crazy coincidence? <laughs> uh, but he's, you know, he, like the point being that he was, when Bush came in office, the idea was that they were going to cut down, Penta, you know, like Pentagon bloat and bureaucracy, et cetera. And private contractors, both on an ideological level, because these are all free market guys, satisfied something on an enrichment level, because a lot of them at stakes in these companies, uh, Dick Cheney, Koff you know, they Bruh, uh-
2: uh, just as an aside, it doesn't get said enough, but like his tax return in two, like what he filed for in taxes was something I forget, man, it's between 10, $10 and $20 million the first year of that war something oh, had, like
3: his his taxes were nuts he is he has nutty taxes colin powell also has has uh he has, like, he had pretty crazy taxes this
2: isn't even a secret this is just like public not like this guy filed the taxes like what he made off of the war well
3: just wait do, do, what wait your declared. listeners find out that uh george w bush started a company with osama bin laden's brother <laughs> uh you know like it's it's all i mean the i think that with this stuff it's also though like That privatization, it's, you know, some of it is analogous to what has already been going on with all sorts of, you know, you know, everything from like the private companies that administer the messaging services for people in in prison to, you know, the like privatization of school lunch, you know, whatever it is like this is, you know, the federal, the Pentagon is the largest part of the American government. It stands to reason that there's some privatization. Um, What Naomi Klein and the shock doctrine and others have argued is that a wartime mobilization, even a limited one in the case, as in the case of Iraq, uh, you know, as opposed to like a total war mobilization, like in World War II, even a limited one, you know, you can, you can suspend the rules. You can do things that you otherwise wouldn't be able to do, whether it's in Iraq or in the case of, you know, like meaning that they were, you know, like they literally, they put like a 24 year old in, in charge of the Baghdad stock market, like, or they, uh like, you know, like uh, like some ex McKinsey consultant or something, or they, you know, will try and do things here. And a lot of what that is here is, you know, you will see, um, I, I mean, these are like, you know, when money goes to defense contractors and money goes to private military companies, PMCs and stuff like, you know, that's that's money that's not going to other parts of the economy that actually are productive. Dude.
2: Like this I mean, just goes to
3: bullshit. This is, <laughs> you know, it's, killing it's just,
2: it's just, and it's literally like people don't think of it this way. Cause they think of a war, they think of the military, that it's an arm of the government. But when you privatize the shit out of this war, it's literally our money going to these companies. Well,
3: and part of it is also, you know, it's like a whole ecosystem, right? So here, like, a, here's a fun game um, that I like doing, find a general or a high level ranking Pentagon or defense official who has left the in White House administration or left it with government in the last few years and see where they end up. So like, you know, my favorite, to you know, I did this once with John Kelly up, oh, he's on the board of, you know, a gigantic defense contractor, you know, a guy who's Trump's chief of staff, former head of the Marines, you know, you could find. Every single one of these generals, like they need a place to land. And those places that they land need people to make sure they continue getting contracts. And this is a tale as old as time. And I think that, you know, there's with Iraq, it shouldn't be overstated too much because I think that there were other more geopolitical influences that ultimately, like, you know, made it such an appealing target for invasion. The way in which that war was conducted, you know, I mean, you know, we saw it over well, a Well, I would never span. say
2: that it was the, like the, the grift was the point. I, I think the, I think the, the 20 years though, I, it's hard to argue with, like that the grift wasn't the point when, when you think about how long we stayed there and well, just. In Iraq, con- I mean, it was partly contained. because
3: we, in Afghanistan, we, you know, I think that that's, that's especially true where it's like, we created a, you know, like, like Afghanistan is a country of 40 million people. There's one city in the middle of it that is like, you know, that like is historically like secular, educated, foreign, cosmopolitan, et cetera. There are a couple other cities like Jalalabad or mazar sharif that are big. But like, aside from those cities where, you know, not the majority of people live, the majority of the country is pretty rural. Um, you know, we I mean, we basically propped up this bullshit government until the Taliban took over a couple of years, you know, last year or two years ago. So. I think in that instance you know like the grift like that was a racket that we ran for 20 years in iraq it was a really into, you know like there was a grifty part of it but then it was like it was crisis man because you know after mm. like when things kind of started to stabilize after noriel maliki becomes a uh, leader in the late 2000s and into the early 2010s and they you know the government creates these death squads they basically they achieve stability by extreme brutality and because people are just so like like tired Eventually, though, that's, you know, like the Syrian civil war kicks up and that is able to draw enough people in such that, like, you know, it like absorbs a bunch of fighters in conflict and spits them back out in northern Iraq and boof, you got ISIS. And so it's like in Iraq, it's, you know, we were basically up until we, you know, 2017, 2018, you know, we were helping to triage things functionally you know, we were, I mean, it's, it's been like an incredibly rough time and I also mean, like, yeah. And to say it's, you know, it's, which is to say it's been a constant state of conflict since the invasion, albeit, you know, not with the same intensity as those first couple of years.
2: Yeah. And I'm glad you brought up ISIS. Cause I think that's another important factor. They, 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 they're so representative of the colossal failure. Um, Again, when, when you talk about, the the PR campaign to sell the war, the why's, the why it was necessary, and you know these incredible ends that would be achieved for quote unquote for the Iraqi people. Um, and then you know <laughs> what comes out of it is that they they create um, in in the place of Saddam some some in many ways more awful enemies. Uh, ISIS being probably the most emblematic matic of that uh and I, I you know i remember these videos that they would play on cnn of these fucking losers in their pickup trucks and you know all these guys are beheading people but there's no isis without this fucking invasion right like there, there's no
3: there, i mean there's no isis for a couple of reasons the first of which is that like the you know like the syrian civil war is like the crucible that gives birth to isis because like the way that like you know, Islamic fundamentalists like jihadists like have sort of historically uh, moved is that they were um, like Afghanistan and the fight against the Soviet Union in Afghanistan over the course of the 1980s was like, you know, like their great big struggle that like burnished their reputation. They helped make mm-hmm. an, you know, like they told themselves they helped make an beat empire. The,
2: beat the Soviets, man. Kick yeah, their they,
3: asses. <laughs> they, I mean, they, 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 they got sent them high tail and running and then. Those like same forces are after, you know, like the Taliban come to power in Pakistan, which supports the Taliban. And, uh, you know, like there is a real concern about like, all right, well, we've got all these spun up radical guys. We don't want them making trouble for us in Pakistan. So the general, (laughs) so the generals and so like, you know, Pakistan's run by like a has been run by like a group of. uh, like like a devout Muslim generals for know, a few decades now. And those guys, you know, so it's like, all right, well, where do a lot of these fighters, you know, they're called often Arab fighters or foreign fighters. It's just kind of like the, a colloquialism, um, uh, by this point. Um, and you know, like they send them like, well, like, you know, like they, they kind of go where there is a conflict where they can fight, you know, for their interests. And in the case of Syria, You know it was a really big opportunity for islamic you know fighters who had primarily been in central asia before to go in and inflame that conflict and isis was in part like you know the it's what happens when you get like these people all together like the expendables they ultimately will you know like they can generate something new um (laughs) and in northern iraq was you know i mean a totally depleted place it was you know the iraqi army was in bat was in a bad way and you could have something like ISIS just come up and you know, it's worse than Saddam, they're way more draconian, et cetera. You know, it almost all goes without saying. But the thing that sort of I, I would guess like the big failing that sort of, that that what ISIS represents, I guess, is that like, it's a, um, you know, it, it was it's the final like, it's the most advanced stage of something that like America, you know, has long thought that it could wield, right? Like we wielded jihadism and these kinds of people against the Soviet Union and the Cold War. We wielded them against Saddam Hussein to a certain extent. We've wielded them against a whole lot of different people in different contexts. And then, you know, we, you know, and we still continue to, by the way, you know, we're allies with Saudi Arabia, uh, we're allies with Pakistan. <laughs> Um, you know, we have a very complicated relationship because part of, you know, the way things work has been that it's like, yeah, we can manage these kinds of people, these ISIS types, but also we're constantly at war with them and they're going to shoot up an Eagles of death metal concert in France or something like that is the, you know, like if people remember that, like, that's the level, um, like, I don't think that they have, you know, I mean, if there's any lesson to be drawn from it, it's that like, I don't think that these, uh, like, like like these groups are born of crazy political instability and like you know the Iraq war was just a like a it, it, as destabilizing an event as you could imagine you know it was just like let's wind the clock back in an industrialized country where there's a bunch of you know islamist ferment perhaps below the surface that we can capitalize on
2: i remember this is a couple more things I want to talk to you about before we get you out of here, because you've given you've been very generous and given us a lot of shit. But I remember listening to blowback. One of the things that I that just stuck with me that that I didn't understand before listening to your um, to you guys' podcast was the degree to which the Iraq war orchestrators thought they could make like their own sort of neoliberal fever dream (laughs) in Iraq. Like they really thought this was like a test tube Sort of like the, it was like a controlled experiment. Like we're not gonna have any of these bullshit constraints of Congress I mean, and all that they, dumb shit from America here. It's going to be a dreamland of neoliberalism and capitalism. Can you explain the extent to which that Rummy and all of these guys thought that they could do this in fucking Iraq of all places?
3: I mean, it's so it's it's funny, like. There is, on Earth 2, on Earth 2, <laughs> there is a version of this plan that doesn't totally go to shit because, I mean, like, like obviously, like, the neo, the market stuff is crazy. But, like, you know, again, Iraq was fairly educated. It mm-hmm. was pretty cosmopolitan. It had, you know, it, it's within the city of Baghdad, you had people of different ethnicities living side by side. And like, you know, for the level of sectarian and ethnic conflict, you know, the civil war that would basically happen in the mid 2000s after, you know, after we invaded, you know, like that was a pretty uh, rapid slide and i think that you know it's like well then all right like so, so there was some there 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 was like this cosmopolitan class. And, I, and,
2: I want, and i want people to understand too i think what what they probably i would imagine they envisioned was like some version of what they did with japan oh right we'll, we'll be
3: greeted as liberators
2: <laughs> like yeah, yeah exactly. we're, we're gonna collaborate with the right people and it like it's gonna be great and well, we're gonna and, have and- way more control over it
3: and, and that's, that's, that's a, the Japan comparisons are a really, really good one because of just how differently we treated, you know, our, our our vanquished opponents. And in the case of Japan, you know, we dropped two bombs on them and then set their whole country on fire and made them do an unconditional surrender. You know, like like there was a there was a like this, you know, like, 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 you know, making them bend the knee truly. And in the case of Iraq, like, you know, did all this crazy shock and awe uh, and then once things started to go badly. You know, like, well, why did they go badly? Well, because right up until we invaded, it wasn't as if Iraq was like, you know, some thriving industrial, you know, like a, you know, like Hitler-style, you know, like Nazi right. war machine thing. It was a country that was getting by on handouts, you know, because it was limited in how much oil it could sell for revenue. Like, there, like and even like the oil arrangements that it did have because of this, that it could ship through the sanctions regime, became part of this gigantic scandal known as oil for food. Um, you know, like at the UN. So there's like this. You know, it was really difficult for you know Iraq was like limping by. So when you blew up all that infrastructure for a second time, and you know there was a, like it resulted in a lot of very predictable things that these guys didn't predict because they thought they were going to be greeted as conquerors. Like you know it was instantaneously looting, and they did not anticipate <laughs> looting um, because you know nobody had any expectation. Of course, that they were going to be able to have you know consistent access to goods. Um, you know there's all this stuff that like they just didn't account for. But I think that they're, you know, like their idea that they could just impose this vision and everything was really like, I, I mean, it's, I'm not sure we're ever, you know, it's, I, I was thinking about this today before I got on, like, that's a kind of arrogance that, you know, is, um, is kind of frightening and scary because it's like, you know, like, are it just makes you wonder like do the people who lead our government now have that same kind of like arrogance and hubris about the way that they're conducting policy you know where with whatever wherever it may be um cuz it's not like a you know it's the certainty with which they felt that they would be able to at least manage things if not get the best you know the best as possible outcome and then just how like instead they created probably like the the greatest geo you know geopolitical scandal of the last quarter century um I mean, you know, and also it began at a moment of like, there is never, there was never a moment of greater public sympathy for America after the Cold War than yeah. right after 9-11. You know, yeah. like Ayatollah Khomeini was like, listen, listen, come in. He was like, listen guys, like that sucks. We feel you, <laughs> you know, like, like there, you know, there's like, it's, it's like, like. That's like, a tough
2: one, that was a tough like, one. <laughs> like
3: And then it's like, yeah, like, yeah, exactly. They're like, tough. <laughs> yeah, and then, you know, that's a bad beat. And then, you know, and like, what did we do with that? Like, we, yeah. like, you know, I mean, it's, so to me there is like, like i think it it's important to say that like this wasn't a mistake this was a plan etc but it is i think important to acknowledge that like their plan did they not thought work.
2: it was gonna come out way better yeah
3: they thought this. it was gonna be one way but it was not that way
2: <laughs> right um and i think the last thing that we should definitely talk about is the the actual human toll of this whole shit. Um. Obviously, we lost a bunch of American soldiers, not just, you know, people that came back uh, dead or wounded, but people who, like, their lives will never be the same from having been out there and shooting seven-year-olds in the fucking head in the name of this damn war, right? <laughs> like, um, in the name—and, like, the, it's been so thoroughly discredited, right? I think Vietnam people got a taste of it of, like, when they came back home, it's just like, what the fuck did we do that for? Um, and I think that's why this gets compared to Vietnam so much is that the the reason for the war, the planning of the war, the, the all of it has been just so thoroughly discredited and the shit uh, human beings had to go through um, in order to execute this colossal failure has ruined people's lives forever. That's a one on our side. And then of course, hundreds of thousands if not millions of iraqis who are dead, wounded or been displaced. Like we'll never even be able to account for this shit the actual human toll of it is just so just unconscionable, man.
3: I mean it's it's the you know one of the things that people should definitely think about is um like one of the weapons that we use um in combat is uh and russians use it too it's now like a a staple of most modern arsenals is a depleted uranium which has you know like can cause like terrifying birth defects and all sorts of other stuff and uh it's effective uh in armament but like you know it's just sort of you know we i just bring it up because it's probably the most it's the most infamous deservedly so uh, example of a kind of munition that we use where the the half-life of what it does, uh, I guess a literal half-life in this case is, you know, like it, it it lasts for decades. And moreover, the degree to which, you know, life before um, in, a, in a place like Iraq, uh, you know, like after, you know, take a city like Fallujah, where many people live, that just gets leveled. That is just leveled. And, you know, the earth is fundamentally salted. Um, you know, these are this is waves of damage that uh analysts you know believe and generally compare they say yeah this is worse than hiroshima like what happened Damn. to these places in terms of the scope so even if not as many people died in terms of just like raw civilians because you know many people had fled and become refugees by this point or many people you know were i mean it's you know i mean it's it's i mean what does it say about america dropping a fucking atomic bomb on a civilian population but you know the the like we've made it poss- very impossible for many, many millions of people in Iraq to return to lives that have any kind of, you know, anything that we would think of as dignity, because uh, we took it from them.
2: Man, that is that is crazy. and And you know what I will say about all of that, everything that we just talked about for the last hour or so, is if there is even a sliver of a silver lining to come out of all of this is that Americans are as war-weary as they've ever been, dude. Like, everybody has the sense and understanding that we're not good at this shit. We never achieve the aims that um, the powers that be claim that we're supposed to be out there achieving, and it's just not worth it it's not worth the money it's not worth the human toll it's not worth the effort it's not it's just like everybody understands that we can't do it and you know i laugh at people and i know we're, we're you know we're on a steady march or a cold war with china and i just tell people, i'm just like yo bruh <laughs> we were in afghanistan for 20 years The Taliban took that shit in 72 hours after we got up and left. The government that we spent 20 years propping up fell in 72 hours to the Taliban. Not the Chinese Communist Party, right? like Not this other superpower, the fucking Taliban. We cannot win any war. If we tried to invade Iran, you know, me and Nando talk about this. They've done war, they've done war games about like, what if we try? Oh yeah,
3: no, the only way that we win those war games is if they cheat, like, and that's a common, like this, they do it all the time. I mean, I do think, you know, and this is probably like a good thing to go out on is that like, you know, the war weariness is like, not something that should be taken for granted because, you know, there are like historically, for example, like um, uh, like Nazi Germany, sort of arose out of this situation where a lot of young Germans actually felt that like they needed to go to war mm-hmm. to avenge the honor of the generation that had previously, you know, failed. And there were a lot of artists you know, the German novelist Ernst Younger is sort of famous for uh, illustrating the like, you know, like the lamenting the, the death of that kind of uh, macho stuff uh, from that period. And I think here it's like, yeah, I think Americans after the experience of the Cold War are largely, and we don't really talk about it, but like, you know, in our own sort of way, like pretty traumatized. And, you know, there's not a situation in which like, you know, you can convince Americans en masse that they gotta sign up and go to war. Struckly. You know, it's like, I mean, it's, you know, it's like Al Pacino in Cuba in Godfather part two. He sees the Cuban jump on the grenade and he knows they want it more. You can't beat so that. win. And you, you cannot beat
2: that, beat that. <laughs> you cannot beat that america russia China, i don't care who you cannot beat that that attitude and that feeling um like uh, some dude who was just you know who was at dairy queen three weeks ago enjoying a blizzard he's just not gonna fucking be able to beat these people who literally are fighting for their lives they're i mean their and like
3: grown up you know like in many cases like their conception of the world is that this struggle is is like what and, and this isn't it's like what in a way, they
2: live to do <laughs> exactly and yeah. it's not
3: just like a religious thing it's just like you know like they were born into it in the way that i was born in an air conditioned room yep. <laughs> you know yep um yeah well thanks for having me on man of
2: course man this was incredible um everybody if you haven't listened to blowback i've listened to every single season obviously i thought you know i love the iraq one cuz i learned so much but the cuba joint was just fucking phenomenal just to learn that it was like 20 guys in the jungle <laughs> took over took over the goddamn government and these people stayed in power as long as they did against literally all of the western powers is incredible um the Korean War joint, which you know, in many ways is the Forgotten War. It was the it was it was the first one that we took a, a big fat L in <laughs> after World War II. Absolutely. And, and we this summer,
3: summer. we have a new season coming out. Okay, talk to us about it. So, Afghanistan.
2: Beautiful. we will yeah. be
3: we'll we'll uh you know, we'll we'll be we've already uh Brendan, my co-host. Uh, at deep beige on deep underscore beige on Twitter, he's already dropped one teaser trailer. We'll be having more details on that later. Um, and then, yeah. And if you want to read, uh, I have an article uh, that'll be in the New Statesman this weekend about um, like just like the history of how we armed Iraq before we beat the shit out of it. So you know what I talked about on this episode. And uh, if you like my 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 stuff, you can follow me on Twitter, where I, I am pretty much always present uh, at NKULW.
2: Noah, my brother, man, thank you so much for coming on today, man. We'll see you guys next week. Peace.